Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 160th episode of the Truth Island podcast. Whether we realize it or not, each of us carries a certain amount of baggage which shapes the way in which we view the world. Everything from the way that our parents treated us, the kids we went to school with, and most importantly, how we either overcame or succumbed to adversity. Numerous studies have shown that the generational climate one finds themselves in often has a significant impact on how we perceive life and even the amount of money we can expect to make over the course of a lifetime. The lessons we learn as children and as young adults often shape just about every decision we make in this world. For example, those who came of age during the Great Depression were more likely to remain frugal as they became older and much more risk averse, leading them to change jobs a lot less often. The experience that someone undergoes with figures of authority can also shape how new interactions play out, whereas the employee who is used to arguing with his boss and getting his way might develop a more brazen attitude towards life than the employee who is constantly being told no and has withdrawn into quiet resignation. The problem with baggage is that on one hand, it can be quite helpful. People who fail to learn from the past are often destined to repeat it. However, those who continue to keep applying the same set of rules to every new encounter are likely to get nowhere far in life. Joining me to help carry some emotional baggage, I am once again joined by Kenny. So Kenny, when boarding the plane of life, should I check in my emotional baggage suitcase or should I try and pass it on as a carry-on? I usually try to travel light, so I would say... (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That's a be- good answer, man, and quick too. So I get the emotional baggage, and uh, the imagery is very helpful too. You know, I think one of the first time I heard about this was, I think perhaps it was Seinfeld. Maybe I'm, I'm, I think it was a, some sort of a sitcom, and they were talking about how a young lady had this baggage and she was carrying it around and something like that. Maybe it was How I Met Your Mother, but um, the concept made sense because it was illustrating something that was real. Uh, a lot of people feel have been hurt, feel certain, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's never like good emotions. Like you don't have good emotional baggage. Like I just have a suitcase full of joy here, you know? It just, it just never happens. What you usually get is anger, frustration, bitterness, and, you know, or jealousy, whatever it is. It's very, usually very hard and negative. Um, hard or negative um, emotions but it makes sense because we go through life and at the end of the day uh, we get scarred a lot we see a lot of things that we probably should not have seen uh, or things happen to us that should not have happened to us and we kind of don't really know what to do with these things so we take them and we shove them you know deep down into the into this carry-on bag and uh, we feel we feel fine until something bubbles up again every now and then and uh next thing you know um behold your baggage is you know, is about and you're you know tossing things about you know. yes and i want to i want to first address the the good side of emotional baggage and how it protects you and, and we'll talk about the it's obviously a negative thing as well but let's talk about the positive so a lot of people who carry emotional baggage they're sometimes attacked as being negative Nellies or dude, you need to let that go. It's not like that anymore. Think positive. 
And I, you know, in the, in the past few weeks, I've really latched onto this term. I don't know if you've heard it, the term toxic positivity. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but it's like a, a new term that's starting to percolate where it's like, sometimes there is like really bad things going on and your positivity and your like optimism is actually toxic because it's not really addressing really bad stuff that is going on. And I think that's where emotional baggage kind of protects us. It is a, a tool of self-preservation. If, and I'll give you an example of this. If there's a girl out there who just got out of in a very, very, very abusive relationship, she should be scarred and she should be calloused and she should approach every new interaction more on guard. And when she says like things in her head, like, you know, this kind of reminds me of my ex or whatever. It's very easy to attack that young lady and be like, you're just being negative. Not everyone is like uh, Mark, you know, or whatever it is. But what that girl is doing is she's protecting herself because she's studying her new uh, boyfriends or studying her new situations and seeing patterns that have manifested in the past. And she's being what, an, what a highly intelligent species does. If, they, if they've experienced danger before, then they use those experiences to better protect themselves. You only need to burn yourself once on the stove before you learn, hey, I got to be really careful when I'm around the stove. And I think that's like a, I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone actually defend emotional baggage, but I think I'm probably going to be the first person out here to say, in some cases, it's actually allowing people to survive. And if they let go of that emotional baggage, uh, they're going to be without a survival kit. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. Uh, I can see that. And, and you know, it's, it's you, your comment earlier about toxic positivity. <laughs> I love that. It's just so strange. Um, I mean, yeah, I've, I've heard a lot about toxic negativity, which, you know, I personally, I don't, not my, it's not my favorite term, uh, but I, I can see what people are trying to say. Um, so he, here's the thing about emotional baggage. You're right. It is very, it's very protective because it's, it's a constant reminder of, you know, there might be a landmine here, line, a landmine here, might be a landmine here. It's a, it's a constant reminder. But he, he, here's, here's and, and I can see that being a very helpful thing. Okay. That being said, here, here's the difficulty with emotional, uh, the emotional difficulties we carry. They weigh us down. They hurt. It's like a lump in your chest or it's this, this difficulty in your shoulders. It makes you unhappy. Because the, 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 the analogy of, you know, the, 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 the experience you have with the stove that stops you from touching it again, it's not an emotional response. It's not an emotional response. You never, you don't go around staring at stoves with suspicious eyes saying, I bet you're going to, you're trying to burn me, aren't you? Yeah. You know, or, you know, you, you never slap the stove for looking at you the wrong way. So, <laughs> the, so with the stove, it's, it's, it's more, it's, it's more of, you've, you've learned something. It's an intellectual response. But with humans, often with humans and with situations that bring about the emotional difficulties, Yes, the, the intellectual response is there, but the emotional response is also there. And when I was going to say, well, are you saying that emotions are bad and emotions are not good? No, emotions are great. I think we go, we have emotions for good reasons. We just have to know that there's, uh, there's how you say, a, 
there's a use, or should I say, a necessity for emotions, a place where and a place where they become where they become very destructive or hurtful, a constant uh, a constant burning, a constant destruction to us as we go on. So the learning of the lesson and the being the the the, the situation that makes you a bit more careful and wiser is super important. It's super important, and the, the lesson can be learned with the emotional baggage, but I would say that the emotional baggage should at some points be, should be unpacked and dealt with. Well, I like what you just did there. So you're basically parsing out the emotion from the baggage because the baggage itself is very helpful because it's a set of experiences that informs your, like it's a set of experiences that inform how the world works. So the baggage itself is useful. You got your like toothbrush in there and your underwear and your whatnot, but it's the emotion that is problematic. So let, let's take our girl who got screwed over by a crummy boyfriend. If she starts dating someone new and this new boyfriend starts reminding her of her ex-boyfriend, Perhaps the appropriate response is to not be emotional about it, but just simply to sever the relationship immediately and being like, okay, logically, not emotionally, but logically, I'm starting to see the same exact patterns manifest in this new boyfriend that I saw in my old boyfriend, and therefore I need to terminate this relationship. So there doesn't need to be theater, there doesn't need to be theatrics, there doesn't need to be tears, there doesn't need to be a Broadway production. It's just a question of like, my experience has taught me that this guy or this these types of people are a freaking disaster and I need to avoid these types of environments. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is absolute wisdom. That's just wisdom. Yes, that is what I'm saying is it's the, uh, so I think you said it right. There, there is no, there is no need to care. So often when it comes to the emotions, when, when, and you know, these kinds of emotions are very unruly. They kind of come out at very strange and unwanted places. You might be having dinner with a friend, and you know they say something that reminds you of someone and all of a sudden you're starting to feel this unease this you know this uneasiness about the situation i remember once um there was a situation um, a situation where you know somebody had responded very unkindly towards um towards a friend because in because of something they had said that reminded of reminded them of um their father and it's like, okay, you have this emotional disturbance, this emotional um, weight that you carry around because of something your father has said, done, or who he was as just as a general human being. And you've you've attacked that in your in your being so much that even the slightest reminder of that, you have this very strong emotional rejection towards that the agents of that reminder. And if the, the person could be totally different because words are words, you know, it's like the person who came into, into, into your home to rob you said, um, don't you look pretty tonight? So it was, you know, a couple of years you get married and you find um, the husband just said that, you know, don't you look pretty tonight? And it's the same thing. You have you come back with the same emotional distress you know, you find yourself in this very um, anxious and, uh, you know, um, visibly distraught situation. And it, sh it shouldn't be the case. But 
Yeah, I think it absolutely makes sense to learn from your situation, from, from past situations, whether boyfriends or whether girlfriends or, you know, what, whoever and wherever, learn from the situations. But, and if they've hurt you, I mean, the pain is real. That's, but here's the thing about two things. There are two camps to this that I don't, I've never understood. People who think that emotional pain is not a real pain. It is a real pain, and it's actually one of the most embarrassing pains because you can't say to a person, "My insides hurt." My, I said, "What do you mean? Your kidneys? You should go see a doctor." You're like, "No, no, you don't get it. My insides, my inner being hurts. How can you say that when you, you know, when you, when you, when when someone when uh, C.S. Lewis talks about how it's easy to say my leg is broken or my arm is broken, but it's hard to say my heart is broken because there's nothing to you can point at." So I never understood people who wouldn't understand, who never, who, who wouldn't see that the pain, emotional or internal pain, is actually is just as painful. But I would even argue that it might be even more painful, because there's no, it's hard to prove it, and there's very little remedy for it. The second part about this is people who don't believe that other other emotions besides those ones that are painful are real. You have to talk to people to say, you know, I'm feeling real emotions, man, real emotions. Like, yeah, but you're feeling anger, you're feeling frustration, you're feeling depression and sadness, you're feeling anxiety, you're, see, you're feeling um, hatreds, you're feeling real things, you're feeling heavy things. True, those are real, absolutely. But you're also forgetting that joy is a real emotion. You're forgetting that there's a there's thankfulness is a real emotion. Those, those sublime and light emotions, they're real. We rarely ever consider those, those ones real. And we, we often see them as either fanciful or, you know, we never really recognize them like we recognize the dark and the heavy. So I would say, no, they're, they're, they're pain, emotional pain is absolutely real. But at the same time, you have to know that um, emotional bliss is also pretty darn real. Absolutely. And we need to learn how to, you know, deal with those kinds of things. One of the issues is that a lot of people don't have a self-awareness as to their emotional pain. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, when I was a teacher, uh, the teaching profession is uh, predominantly female. There's, there's not that many male teachers. So a lot of kids would lash out against me, not, not because I was a bad guy, but because I reminded them of their father who either was absentee or was abusive, right? So a lot of, like I, I worked in some rough areas and a lot of these kids have very, very, very negative um, experiences with their father who were, who were either not there or abusive in the household. So they would lash out against me just because if I said something in a firm way or I said something that was a little demanding or whatever it was, it reminded them instantly of their father and then they lashed out. Now, these kids had no idea, like they weren't putting two and two together. They weren't realizing that like uh, Mr. Azrod is just trying to teach me history here. Um, this has, you know, he's nothing like my father. So it actually really requires the individual to be highly introspective with themselves and, and be able to say to themselves, ah, okay, um, the reason I'm giving my teacher or my boss whatever a hard time is that they remind me of my 
demanding father or abusive stepdad or whatever it was in my life that 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 brought pain into my life so that that's that's what's happening and this requires a lot of introspection probably you probably need the help of a trained professional to kind of start connecting those past experiences with whatever emotional stuff that's going on in the present it's really hard for any someone to do that by themselves i think and i like what the cs lewis quote that you said that you know, it's hard, it, it's hard to say, it's hard for man to admit that he has a broken heart. I also think that it makes you sound weak. Like, I think a lot of people are afraid of coming off as vulnerable or weak and be like, oh, I have a broken heart because they know they're going to be judged for that. So I, I think that a lot of people don't, don't, don't admit it because their pride and their competence. Like a lot of people like to come off because in our, in our society, we glorify people who are robotic and uh, what we call like uh, very objective. We like, we like robotic, objective, s- corporate CEO types that live in Silicon Valley who just view every, oh, well, logically people are going to be doing that. You know, like we, 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 we kind of value these, these types of personalities because they're, they're remarkably efficient. So for somebody to admit, Oh wait a minute! My emotional baggage is creating a bi- you know a biasness in my mind. It's not that empowering, and it's like a sign of weakness. I'm not saying that it's a sign of weakness, but I think our society is conditioned to think that it's weakness because we like you know our super ob- objective like um, robotic like CEOs that just look at data and all this other stuff. So I think that there is like a stigma in society for people who do have like, uh, emotional baggage or, th- or personalized experiences. Like we'll always like one thing that kind of pisses me off a lot is, uh, like when I was in college, somebody would be sharing a personal anecdote of something that happened to them. And the professor would be like, that's nice, but the data doesn't suggest that. And I think we need to actually start getting away from that type of thinking, right? Because that person is sharing a very important story that happened in their life that's obviously making them feel vulnerable and just shutting them down and saying, well, the data doesn't support that. You're really discounting a lot of truth in what that person might be saying. Yeah. So we, yeah, we, we don't care much for anecdotes. And it's not that they're not valid but so one thing about humans is that I've, I've realized that you know we're not we're not very good at caring for others like we don't give a crap really we we like to think we do or we really some some of us really want to but we just really we're really bad at it but before i go into that i want to say to to, to the people who who can so find it hard to talk about the things they feel inside and, um, and I think it's important to do that. You know, it's like even uh, even Seth Gass feel things. You know, <laughs> um, there, there are some there are some who don't, and there are very small of them. So a small amount of them, they just they have just sociopathic tendencies, and that's not a bad thing. They just naturally they just built that way. They don't really feel things the way we feel. Or I like how a young girl puts it in a show. She says, she says your emotions are just turned way down. Just were like really way down. You don't feel much. You don't feel like what we feel, you know? Uh, but there are people like that. And you have to understand that that's just who they are and how they are. They don't really feel much and they don't really express much because it's not there to express. And that's fine. It's just, you have to be okay with that. 
some people just like some people aren't okay with you you know expressing your emotions some people are not okay with you if you don't so like you must tell us how you feel i don't really feel anything i'm feeling quite fine actually is if i don't know if hunger is an emotion because that's <laughs> that's what i feel and that's okay but here here here's the thing it's not about emotions okay it's here's the thing it's not about emotions it is but it's not the emotions is is simply a a symptom of, of, of another problem. So many people don't have any friends. That's that's the thing. Because here here's the thing about close friendships. You know, when people I you have one or two close friends, you can talk to them about anything. Doesn't matter. There's no category of emotional talk versus not emotional talk. It's just talking. You just talk to them. You you express to them. You ask them questions. They ask you questions, and it's just very natural. Many people don't have friends. We we uh, we we jump to the category of friendship with individuals so quickly that we lose meaning. A lot of the, just because you've known someone for 10, 20 years doesn't actually mean you're, you're your friend. It might just be a well-known acquaintance. Because the category of friendships, it's a very it, it, the, the definition must be it must be set and it must be a good one. And when you when you find when you set it and it's an accurate one, you may find that you really don't have any friends at all. And that's very sad because you've known people for so long and you think you can talk to them about anything. You think they're your friends. They're really not. And I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not saying it's not like this weird conspiracy, like, hey, man, people don't want to be friends anymore. No, it's just, you really. <laughs> no, just, it's just like you find that your friend is just a cardboard cutout. And that's, that's really sad to find that someone you've been getting drinks with for 10 years is a cardboard cutout. But it's not at all, not, not at all, not at all a decent, a real friend. So I think that, you know, a lot of people, and you say, okay, well, what about these people? I, you know, I spend time with them. I, blah, 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 blah. Then why are you, you know, why are you suffering? What's the suffering about? What's this internal suffering about? And can you talk to them about it, honestly? So I, I think, I think a lot of people don't have friends. And if they do, then many of them don't have good friends or wise friends. It depends on how you define friendship. For me, the friendship, when a, when a person is a friend, these some certain categories are met internally. And then I know this is true. This is my friend. And so when, when you have good friends around you, usually it's one, maybe two, at best three, just a perfect number. Three good friends around you. You can talk about anything, and each person's each person's presence is a compliment to the next person. And you guys, you know, I like to. I was telling a uh, a buddy today actually that uh, guys for guys to have those people that make you feel like you're ten years old again is pretty awesome. You just you're just a kid again. You're not really a kid, but your spirit is free. You just you don't care. You're having you're speaking you're speaking like you just had a large meal. Freely, <laughs> with joy. So I, I think I think that a lot of people don't have friends, and they don't have, and they themselves aren't friendly. So because when you say you know people don't have friends, everyone says yeah I don't have a friend. I'm such a great person. No, you sometimes it's like you don't have friends, but you're also not a friendly person. Often that's the case. Is that most people who don't have friends? It's not that they're bad people. It's just that they really don't know how to be friends with other people. Friendships are often, you know, I've noticed that friendship um, is often, you know, we drink together or we hate the same things and the same people. And we gather together every now and then to talk horribly about those people. 
that's what we consider friendships. Or we, you know, we go out together or we have sex together. That's what, you know, it's like, what's, what's the point? That's, like, you, you must understand that as a human being, as a real living, breathing human being, you need a friend, a true friend, a good friend, and, and, and hopefully two or three around you that can be a helping hand in these kinds of things. I think there's a lot of sound advice uh, in, in what you're saying right now. And I think there's a number of things I, I, I want to like, I, I'm trying to memorize everything you said because there's so much to address. So, so much good. I think you uh, you touched upon, you said that we don't like anecdotes and I love anecdotes. I actually, I, I, I think some of the best research, like I think one of the best research is like George Orwell going into areas like he, he would just go into like ten, uh, tenements and then see how people were living and write down all these stories. And I love those kind of anecdotes. And I think we need to get back to more qualitative research where people are on the, where you got boots on the ground, actually interviewing people, talking to people, telling funny stories. I think it crosses a line when people start telling tangents. Okay, there's a difference between an anecdote and a tangent. The anecdote is related to the topic being addressed. A tangent is like, well, then my uncle did this and I was kicked out. No one wants to hear your tangent. Your tangent is nonsense because it's unrelated to what you're actually talking about. But your anecdote is further evidence to the main issue that's being discussed. So anyone who just throws out anecdotes, well, that was just your experience. If that experience is related to the main thing that is being discussed, I think it's fair game. It only becomes a tangent when you're talking about great aunt Sally and the, you know, this happened to me when I was four years old. That's a tangent. I like what you said about having a good set of friends. I think that's immensely important, not cardboard cutout friends, real friends, because what ends up happening is if you don't have real friends in your life, these emotions begin to manifest themselves in other negative ways. Uh, we know with adolescent boys, it becomes like uh, raw physical aggression. Uh, we know with older men, it becomes a drinking or drug problem. Um, the, the, the opioid crisis in this country is ridiculous. There's a new term out there. It's called death of despair. So people who are dying of drug overdoses, sociologists are calling these deaths of despair. We actually have a term for this right now. That's what happens when you don't actually have quality friends in your life because all of these emotions just find some new way of, of, of coming out. It could be drugs, it could be violence, it could be a drinking problem, a drug problem, a sex addiction, or any of the other kind of nefarious rabbit holes that people are finding themselves in. So people, it's, not, it's no longer an option where it's like, all right, man, just keep your mouth shut and, and just keep it, keep it under control. Uh, because if, if you do that, you're going to start developing some very, very, you're, you're gonna one, become extremely jaded about life and you're gonna hate everybody. You may not outwardly uh, vocalize it, but internally you're gonna be like, all humans are evil. Everything in this world is messed up. That's, that's gonna be your go-to That's gonna be your go -to programming in your head. And then you're probably going to develop some nasty pernicious habits on the side uh, as like a, a valve or an outlet um, for your negative thinking. So I absolutely agree with you that finding communities of friends where you could have honest bro talk is really going to help kind of combat some of these more pernicious habits and tendencies that we tend to develop uh, when we don't have a, a proper venue to express our frustration.
Yeah, yeah, it can be very helpful. It's hard to find, and it's it's hard it's hard to find, and it's it's impossible to rush. But if but but when when found, it's very helpful, and it's it's, uh, it's transformative. Okay, let's talk about um, some of the. We've already kind of done this, but. I think there's also a negative side to emotional baggage or baggage in general. And that is on one hand, we discussed in the beginning, it protects you. It protects uh, you from getting involved in a toxic relationship or a toxic workplace, right? You're using your experience as an intelligent creature to avoid harm and danger, which is fine. What happens though, is that the world of your childhood is no longer the world that you may find yourself at 40. The world is constantly evolving and it's constantly changing. It changes from relationship to relationship, from job to job. Even, even sometimes, like, sometimes you might just find yourself living in a really crappy decade. Like the 1930s was a really crappy ass decade. Uh, there was the Great Depression. There was the rise of fascism. Like it was just a crappy decade like imagine that like imagine a whole 10 years is just crappy as hell and the way you survive in the 1930s is a lot different than the way you survive in let's say uh the 1980s or the 1990s you know like 1990s was a pretty damn good decade we got internet we got like windows 95 you can't you can't you can't use your 1930s thinking to survive in the 1990s and I think that's a problem with most people is that the way of survival and the way of thinking that they develop between the ages of, let's say, I, I don't know, 14 to let's say 25. I think that's like the critical era of where your thinking crystallizes and manifests where like whatever was going on when I was 14 to 25, that is my permanent approach to life. So if I was coming of age in the 1930s, if I was 16 year old, uh, 16 years old in 1932, everyone is evil. Um, the world is a rod in place. And that's going to be my thinking moving forward. How do we get people to start breaking these pattern, these like nasty patterns of thought that they formulated when they were much younger? Well, I think it comes simply from, you know, those kinds of things is changed by a certain kind of exposure. So there's three kinds of exposures that are super, super important for a human being. First is physical exposure. It's always good to meet people. And meeting people always, uh, it rubs you the wrong way until it doesn't, because you end up liking some of the people you meet. And they may be very different from you. And people have a way of surprising you and how, and, uh, and helping you change your mind without knowing they're helping you change your mind. Second one is a mental exposure. It's very important to read. Not just read, but also watch very good shows. People think, well, TV is just bad for you. No, TV is pretty awesome because it's it just bypasses the boring stuff. <laughs> you know, so a lot of good shows and a lot of good reading is super important. And then some really good music too. Um, it really does, it helps you, it helps you change, changing the mind is very important, expanding, expanding the mind, how your imagination works, what you would consider possible versus impossible. You know, if you would have told, if you would have told Galileo at a time, or someone, or a contemporary of his, but at some point they'd be, you know, 
screens that people would look at and talk to another person on the, on the other side of the world and, and so forth. And, you know, it'd be, it'd be pretty hard to believe, but here we are doing it. I think that's, so I think, I think those kinds of media, uh, at least the right ones, because some of them are just honestly just bollocks. They're just there to like rob your brain of the little you have, you know. But a lot of them are a lot of them are really good, um, really good and really helpful. And uh, the third, which is I think at, at once the most e the easiest and at the same time the hardest, which I know I I am not trying to be coy. I mean it is a spiritual exposure. That's only for those who actually believe in those kinds of things. If you don't believe in it, that's, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing there for you. But if you do, then you have to understand, you have to ask yourself what, you know, what that's about. Because I think the combination of all these three things change, changes people for the better. Or should I say, it can change people for the better. I like, I like what you said about, um, meeting new people and reading I, i'm not i'm not entirely sold on like there's been some good movies but what's on netflix right now is just not that great <laughs> but but let's let's i'm gonna i'm gonna zoom in on reading and meeting new people i'll give you an example of how meeting new people has changed my life i've been complaining a lot on facebook about the housing situation here in new york uh, it's ridiculously expensive out here. You know, houses are go. You know, rundown houses are are going for like uh, eight hundred to a million dollars. And in rundown, run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see the wow on your face, right? And wow. everyone, everyone in my bubble is kind of in that same cynicism tornado. But this is an example of where, like, when I chat with people uh, in the Midwest, like I was chatting with some guy from Arizona. Um, and he was like, what are you talking about housing crisis? You know, a house here costs like 85,000. I'm like, what? A house for 85,000 or like 100,000? That's insane. And that, that's like an example of like where my, now I'm not saying that like that's a solution that everyone should just pick up and leave and go to Arizona and, and just live out there. But it was kind of interesting to see that the place that you live can affect the way that you view the world. And the only way that you can figure that stuff out is by talking to people that are living in drastically different circumstances than you yourself are living in. Because if I'm only talking to other jaded New Yorkers, yeah, it's a housing crisis, there's no place to live, you know, we got people living in tents and living, uh, living on the subway, it's just nothing but negativity. But you speak to someone yeah. from Arizona who just bought a house for 80,000, they're feeling pretty good about themselves and they're feeling like they can do anything and that the, the world is wonderful and that this is a magical country that we live in. And that's just the power of speaking to other people. Same thing uh, with reading books. You know, you, you get to talk to people who lived during different times in history. You're like, oh man, I wish I was alive back then. Or thank God I'm not alive back then, yeah. <laughs> depending, depending on the book that you're reading. And those, those conversations are great. And oftentimes you get to speak. You know, I always say the people who write books they gotta they, they gotta be a little bit smarter than the average bear, right? Like you can't be a dummy and write a 300 page book. I'm, I'm just sorry to say that. Like you know, and you get to actually have, you know, reading a book is like having a conversation with an intelligent person that's there to teach you something that you probably don't know because you can't be a dummy and write a book 
without knowing something. I'm sure. I, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are books out there that are written by complete dummies. But even even a dummy has to know something in order to get those to get 300 pages of Microsoft Word down. You gotta you gotta know something, right? Like can't all just be. It can't just be like uh, you know the word cat a thousand yeah. times, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> what you're trying to say. Please tell me more. Cat, um, cat, 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 right? Like that's just the whole book is like the word cat. And, and then like chapter 12, dog, 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 dog. <laughs> so like. That was the book, very domestic, very domestic. Um, <laughs> I like that. That was a domestic, domestic. Um, I, uh, I, I, I can see that. I, and, oh, but in, the, in defense of, you know, shows and movies, there are two, three come to mind that are just fantastic that do. Uh, comes to the place of uh, brilliance and beauty. One is a show called Cheers. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, I love Cheers. Cheers is a great show. I, I will say that. The writing on that is superb. It's superb. Right? Yeah, it wonderful. is. It is. Wonderful, wonderful show. Wonderful show. Um, another show that is actually pretty superb for the first, I would say maybe first seven seasons. People can argue about that. Just, just to just to bash, they took Cheers off Netflix. I'm just I'm just throwing that out there. Like they, yeah, you, it used to be on Netflix, and now and now it's not. It's not. It's yeah, I, well, Netflix. I believe Netflix was the first place I actually watched it. I knew I I, I loved it, but it's, I think it's on Paramount Plus now. So I, I grew um, up watching it um, on Nick at Night. I think I think it used Nick to come on. Yeah, Nick at Night. Remember that? I remember, so I remember Nick at Night. Yeah, like like all the kid, you know, like your Hey Arnold or whatever show would end, and then you know, like what happened is like I wasn't really ready to go to bed yet, and then that show would come on. It had like this kick-ass like intro, you know. Sometimes you want to go, and it's like yeah, ho- it, ho- it hooked me in hook, line, and sinker, and uh, it is a good show. Yeah, sorry. It's really good. And so you know, you have um, I was mentioning um, shortly before then was a. Uh, uh, the first seven seasons of The Simpsons is brilliant writing. Very absolutely, good. Show. Absolutely, yep. Makes me very happy when you watch it. Um, then there's uh, movies you know, done by Studio Ghibli, or Ghibli, where, however you pronounce it, uh, by Miyazaki and his, and his company. Uh, very beautiful movies, very beautiful films. And I would say every Hitchcock film is just wonderful. But, but the point is simply that, you know, there are people out there who... Who, who know how to how, who know how to express very wonderful things, very beautiful things through uh, through visuals. Unfortunately, there are also a lot of people who don't know how to do that and end up creating things that are not very great. But you know, if you enjoy it, you enjoy it. It's like the person, you know, um, person who's pretending to read Immanuel Kant and not enjoying it, and a person who's just reading his Sunday papers, the funnies, and laughing his butt off. Listen, my, I would say that person who's laughing his butt off is doing far better than the person who is reading uh, um, high things but doesn't care a lick for it, you know? Okay, so I'll put a caveat on that. How about oh. this? And Okay, here's my caveat. Television movies before the year 2000. Okay, that's my caveat because, like, like people, people are not getting anything out of like Tenth Avengers or Aquaman Five, or you know, like that. There's not, there's not rich substance. And I think the the shows that you talked about in the '80s and '90s, they were written by people who read books themselves or had life experience. Like these people had rich life experiences that they could parlay into that media. So. 
I, I agree with you. Like, like there was there was a golden era of television and movies where that was possible. I'm just not seeing it with like, you know, your Aquamans or whatever. Now, occasionally there's movies like The Joker or something that come out that are amazing. But on the by and by, I'm not I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing that magic. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's understandable. I mean, I don't really care much for the Marvel films, um, but there's something about a person who can see that. Like I, I was talking to a friend not so long ago and he was saying that he really likes those. I said, okay, fine. I mean, I don't care much for it. Like, I told him that. <laughs> Listen, I, and I just made fun of him, but I understood what he was saying. Um, he, he, see, I think that if a person can enjoy something, really enjoy it, not, not pretend, not like, should I, I should be enjoying, should, should, I should be enjoying this. A person can enjoy something like a kid enjoys, like, a, like his first lollipop you know, or his first ice cream cone, like they really get into it, man. If a person can enjoy something like that without any filter between them and the thing, it's a good thing for them. You know, if, if I can't, I can't enjoy it. Goodness, I, my, I'm too critical to enjoy something like that. It's an exposure yeah. issue. If you if you have a friend that thinks like The Last Jedi or The Rise of Skywalker or, or whatever, if they think that those are great movies, what they need is they need like a film professor in their life to be like, let me come, my child. Let me show you the way. Let me show you. you need you need like a film professor to get up there and just be like, let me expose that mind. And then once your mind is exposed to this higher art, that you're not going back to Avengers or whatever the hell it is. Like you, yeah. you'll just you'll you'll yeah. All right. That's what I'm saying is that it's, I think there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with the low, quote unquote, if it is lower, uh, mind enjoying the Avengers, because if it's enjoy, what's really truly enjoyed is not wasted. It's not, you know, um, if it's really enjoyed, it's never wasted. And it, it, it um, I do believe it has a transformative quality on the person. You, I mean, you have not, you're very optimistic on this because I've walked into the movie theater, sat there for like 95 minutes, saw the credits, and I'm like, man, I just wasted 14 bucks. Like, <laughs> you didn't enjoy it. Yeah. You, you didn't enjoy it, but the person who did enjoy it, it's never, it's never a waste. It's true. I, I hear what you're saying. That That's true. It's like, who, who am I? to rain on their parade. You're, you're absolutely, I, I hear you on that. Let's get back to the idea of, um, of baggage now and then see if we can kind of come up with some solutions here. So we need to, we need to condition people from being jaded to jaded, right? Because, and, and like, I wanna be careful with here because there's this fear that if you lose your jadedness, you're going to become toxic positive and then you're going to be a sucker and people yeah. are going to take advantage of you and you're going to you're going to you know people are going to be exploiting you you're going to be in a abusive relationship so how do we find the balance of where i have the lessons of my childhood and my young adulthood but at the same time i haven't become a complete sucker that is being tricked into everything so like that's the kind of ideal human being that we need to create, where you're using your experiences effectively, but you haven't become a sucker. Preach it, bro. Preach it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. It's like the one time, I'll trade you this lollipop for your soul. Not again, not again. Uh, never again, Satan, never again. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you don't want to fall for the same tricks over and over again. At the same time, you don't want to be a total... 
um, walking bag of fury. So, <laughs> so what do you do? I think that's the one of most, you know, I was actually talking about this today, this morning with a, um, with a buddy of mine. And I think it's, it's pretty difficult because what you're trying to accomplish is, you know, to have a really sharp mind, a really wise and good mind and a good heart, a gentle and understanding heart, a heart that's not filled with, you know, sour milk. So it, it's, it's, it's up to it's up to the individual's discretion how they want to go about it. But they, the goal is the same. You know, it's all the same. Uh, the goal is the sorry. The end of the goal, should I say, the end of the journey is the same, right? What we all want, and uh, it's up to you. How do you how do you think you should go about it, mate? Because because it's not easy. It's not it's not easy. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I can point point to a specific way <laughs> for each individual. But I think that 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 is what we're looking for is, you know, a, a mind that is wise enough to know when it's when it's about to be played and a heart that's kind enough to not get angry, but just to simply say, I know what you're up to and I'm not going to fall for it. And, you know, I, have, I don't know what to tell you, buddy. You know, I don't, I'm not going to fall for it again. So. Or, um, so, yeah. So maybe the uh, from what you're saying, maybe the first step that you need to take is one, everybody on the face of the earth needs to say to themselves, the things that I experienced in childhood and young adulthood are not the universal truth. That's the, that's the first step in correcting one's behavior is to say that's not the, that's not the God's truth, that's not the universal truth, because other people may have had childhoods that were better or worse than my own. And their experiences are just as legitimate as my experiences. And if they say that the world can operate in a certain fashion, then it can operate in a certain fashion. Just because it didn't happen to me personally doesn't mean that it's outside the realm of possibility. So I think that's the first step is saying my childhood and young adulthood is not the definitive version of how life works. That's the first step. The second step is to constantly, and this is like hard mental work, is to constantly and silently, I guess, comparing your experiences to what is going on in the present, not acting on it immediately, but kind Mm. of waiting. You're you're silently waiting, being like, it's kind of similar, but not quite, or kind of similar, let's see what happens three days from now, let's see what happens four days from now. So you kind of have to be, you have to be patient and wait. You have your, don't don't just throw all of your experiences out the window. That's not the right thing to do, but you got to be silent and you got to be patient and you're kind of starting to look that way, but it's still vague. It's, I'm still not sure yet. And we have to, we have to start becoming more sharper and more critical and more patient in the way that we assess our current reality, because our past is trying to teach us something helpful to our survival but at the same time that past can also impede our survival at at the same time uh i think we're going to leave it at that kenny uh thank you so much for uh holding my 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 uh, luggage here with me <laughs> boy no worries at all all right thank you my friend this concludes the 160th episode of the truth island podcast i'm aaron asrod